welcome back to Mince Levens from the Edge. I am Jeremy Glazer, the co-chair of the Mince Levin Venture Capital and Emerging Company Practice. Mince Levin is a nationally leading law firm focused on helping emerging growth companies achieve success. Check us out at minceedge.com. Well, we are really fortunate to have with us today a great friend and a great client, John Sunt. John, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Jeremy. Glad to be here. John, you have such an amazing background and experience. I'm going to just touch on some high-level issues, and then later on we could talk a little bit about some of the things that you're doing now as well. John's had 25-plus years of experience in the alternative investment industry. In 2002, John founded Altegris and served as president and CEO. In 2010, John led the sale of Altegris to a Fortune 500 company, Genworth, for a multi-year deal valued at $100 million. After selling the company, John served as president of Altegris under Genworth. Three years later, John helped coordinate the sale of Altegris and Genworth Financial to private equity firms Aquiline and Genstar in a deal valued at $440 million. John became a principal owner again and served as CEO of Altegris and later chairman of Altegris until 2016. Wow, those are some big exits and to do them back to back, I'm sure there's some great stories there, John. So let's, let's start from the beginning though. Okay. Why did you choose to start in the investment management business to begin with? Well, it was somewhat arbitrary. I was an options broker in the 80s, making a lot of money. I was making you know six figures, which was a lot of money in the 80s. I was kind of had a dream job. I was behind a screen and the market crashed 23% in one day in 1987. And it was like, holy cow, I was you know, 26 years old, never seen anything like it. Uh, I saw a lot of people lose a lot of money. I saw a lot of pundits get it wrong, all the experts. And six months later, I saw a docudrama on Paul Tudor Jones, a hedge fund manager. He made 110% that year. And something inside me said, what is this? Oh, he's a hedge fund. Oh, he was short the market. So I started to research and study hedge funds, and I decided if I'm gonna get in the investment business, I wanna be the best I can be or the best at finding the best. And that led me to the hedge fund world. And I became obsessed with finding the best managers in the world, and uh, it pointed me to the hedge fund world. So, so what, what exactly did Altegras do? So you talk about the hedge fund world and alternative investments. Maybe just take, let's take a step back for our listeners what, what is alternative investments? Well, hedge funds are just limited partnerships with a broad mandate. Some hedge funds participate in long short equity, some hedge funds are in real estate, some hedge funds are in debt. Uh, there's thousands of them and nobody really has a good grasp on who the best are. It's very hard to find out who the best are and what categories they're in and whether you should invest money in them. So at Altegris, uh, we decided, I decided to create a firm that researched the thousands of hedge funds out there, found the best of the best, uh, ended up building up a research team of nine people, and then packaging these hedge funds in such a way that it didn't take a $10 million check to invest in one guy. So we developed over the years a platform of single manager hedge funds, uh, basically trying to pick the best of the best. Uh, and you know, off to the races we, we started. So to start an investment management business, did you need capital? Well, I, yes, I, I, we literally started out of a house in La Jolla. 
And uh, we had a very creative way of getting leads on the internet. And we slowly started to build our assets under management. Uh, I bought a database company. I created some software around it. Uh, long story short, uh, it was a very organic growth process. I didn't start the business with 10 or $15 million of capital. I started the business with $10,000 of capital and a, a credit line on my credit card. <laughs> Wonderful. So you didn't bring in any outside investors initially to start the company? They didn't understand the business. Back then, we were the only people doing what we were doing. Uh, so I just made the decision to grow it organically. Uh, I kept my burn rate low. I kept my overhead low. And, and, and just kind of one client at a time, one step at a time, slowly built the assets under management. Wonderful. Classic bootstrap story. Absolutely. So how did you build your management team? And so how did you start and, and what did the management team become? Well, I, I built up the business to a pretty large capital base and a big company approached me and said, we want you to do the same thing for us. So I joined a big company called Man, but when I joined them, I created a contract that allowed me to leave them. I said, if you want me to join you and I build a really good ship, you can kick me off the ship and clip the assets under management fee. So I created a, an agreement that allowed me to build under the umbrella of a big company and then branch out, which isn't a bad strategy. Mm -hmm. So the day came to branch out and it was 911. <laughs> the day I had my meeting was 911. The world was falling apart, but I had made the decision to break. I met this guy at 6 a.m. at the Ritz, this guy Stanley Fink, Lord Stanley Fink, and I stuck to my guns. I said, Stanley, I want to execute my contract. I want to get out. I want to start Altegris. And I had the long drive home that day from San Francisco. I couldn't fly. Planes were gone. All the way back to San Diego, I talked to my wife and I said, honey, I don't know if I've made the best mistake, the best thing in my life, or the worst mistake of my life. Yes. But at the time, I chose, uh, I had a really top-notch guy in research. I had a really good outside attorney. And, and I asked those two to join me. I gave them a piece of the company that they had to buy into over time. Uh, and then I eventually brought in uh, uh, our sales guy, who was an amazing salesperson. So we, I ended up inviting three people into the party. Uh, you know, the first. So the initial, the initial management team was was four of you total. Yeah, it, it was. Yes, correct. It was four people. And did they stay with you the whole time? Absolutely. Yeah, the okay. band, we called ourselves the Band of Brothers. Love it. And the interesting thing is, the lawyer was the exact opposite of me. He was, uh, basically, I was Icarus, and I knew if I didn't have a good lawyer, I'd fly into the sun. And, the, and, he, and he wasn't just a good lawyer, he was a good partner. You know, we could have real, like, fireside chats. He was, uh, uh, he understood the business, he had the same value system I had, uh, but he, dis I mean, he disagreed on almost everything, but it was almost a, a, a healthy disagreement. I like it. It's great to hear a story where a lawyer actually played a role <laughs> in the business side for a change. I love it. So, so looking back, John, in you know the formative years of Altagras, is there anything that you wish you knew? Like sitting here today, looking back, and you think about how you started the business, or the things you wish you knew then when you started? I think the initial partnership agreements matter. So we had a little bit of uh, ambiguity, or maybe not ambiguity, but the thought process around the partnership agreement, spend some time with that. We worked through it, but it, it was a little, there were some pain points along the way. And I, I would also say that uh, relationships matter. So as you build your business, cultivate relationships, take the high road. Like I always took the high road with people, even if I just didn't agree with them, even if they were kind of blankety blanks and kind of screwed me over. 
Um, I, I, I wouldn't let them walk all over me, but, but I took the high road on, on certain decisions and how to react to certain scenarios. Expect the unexpected was a, was a big one. Like, you know, you always, every sales plan, every quarterly performance report, every two to three year strategic plan has up and to the right. And it's <laughs> never that way. It's never up and to the right. right. So expect the unexpected. Um, and I would say, uh, you know, I joined a, a, a group called Vistage, which is a CEO training group. And there's several YPO Vistage, there's some others. Get yourself in a mentoring relationship early. Like I, I got to the party a little late. I thought when I joined Vistage, I, I said, gee, you know, I wish I had, I had joined this, this group of, of like-minded CEOs right when I started the company. But it really helped me out. Relatively inexpensive. There's several platforms out there. But getting that third-party input for a relative, you know, you spend a lot of money on sales. You spend a lot of money on offices. Spend money on mentoring relationships. Great advice. Wonderful. So... You started the company in 2002. In 2010, you sold the company. Mm. So what was it that made you realize it was time to sell the company eight years after starting it? Well, I had been calling investment bankers or accepting the calls of investment bankers uh, earlier. And I was just doing it just to get kind of pick their brain and understand what they look for in a business. And it's amazing. Even before you want to sell, you can pick the brains of an iBanker and they'll come in and they'll tell you just what they're looking for. So I used this input on the, fire, the prior two years to kind of groom the company. I said, you know, thank you very much, but the, the cake isn't baked yet. And then 2008 hit, and the cake was getting pretty close to becoming baked, and all hell broke loose in the financial world. And literally, prime brokers were blowing up. Lehman, Bear Stearns. We had money with prime brokers. It could have easily been our client's money that blew up overnight. So the next, I, next group that called me, I paid attention. And they came to the office. I'd already, in my mind, groomed the business for sale. Uh, and I'll never remember, I'll never forget it. It's a, the day of my birthday. These two guys from Fortune 500 slid a term sheet across the table. I pushed my partners out. So I want to do this solo. I don't want you guys in the room. It's too confusing. And uh, they pushed the offer across the, the table. And I remember look, lifting it up and looking at the, the number. And my first reaction was, oh, man, this is great. But my second reaction was, Old, old, and I push the offer back, and I go, you know, that's really not anywhere near what I was looking for. And I, it was just two conversations I was having in my head. But that was the start of the sales process. So I really, this is something really important. You didn't just have some term sheet show up. You actually were undergoing a process and starting to think about the sale for two years yeah. before this actually happened. Yeah, there's some great lessons out there. There's some great material on the internet and through organizations like Vistage where how to groom your company for sale, how to put together processes, what are the metrics that, that uh, people look for when they want to buy your company. And the, the way I got a lot of this information was accepting the lunch accepting the, the free look-see. I let people come in and we talk about my business. I'd very rarely have to get to a, a, a deal room where you give them you know, confidential information. But it was high-level talks about how the investment management business looked at the asset, the investment banker business looked at the asset management business. So it was a free look-see and I go, oh, they really care about the number of uh, these types of relationships. They really care about the growth. of. Oh, they really care about diversification of the product line. So I started piecing together in my head uh, what these guys were looking for several years before I sold. So when the right guys came along, 
I've started to put these pieces into place. Excellent. That's a really great lesson for entrepreneurs looking to sell their businesses. You know, obviously selling a lot of companies is what I do. Sure. And we'll talk in a second about yeah. how you and I met. Yeah, yeah. Uh, getting in and representing you and selling yeah, yeah. and selling your company there in 2010. Yeah. But it's so it's so rare to come across entrepreneurs who've actually been that sort of thoughtful in the process years before the sale. It tends to be more reactive. So, that's right. So that's a really great lesson for people to, to that's walk right. And it actually from. helps you groom your sales pitch. Or actually, like talk about it as a sales presentation. You start to hear the language they're looking for, and that four-minute, that seven-minute, that twelve-minute presentation—it's formed long before you get to that stage. And you can drive value by a good presentation. You can completely move the needle from a seven to a ten x, or from a ten to a fourteen, if you nail the presentation. So this is part of the grooming. Prepare preparation. Yeah. So, obviously, we met when it was when you were selling your company, and I came in to help you in that sale process. And there's a lot of great things and fun right. stories that happened. But right. maybe share, if you don't mind, one of the stories that you thought was most interesting and entertaining well, about the sale process. Yeah, I mean, I remember flying to New York with you, Jeremy, and being in a room of uh, just high-powered lawyers, six or seven. This is like the deal of my life. And it was so great to have somebody like you by my side, walking me through every step of the way. We had some blowout moments, right, uh, uh, with the other side, and it, they kind of worked in our favor. Uh, so we got the deal done. Uh, you had a very cool head in the whole deal. My, my head was spinning. I remember one particular scenario where, you, you know, we, we all... You know, you said, John, you really got to pay attention to the operating agreement post-close because 50% of my deal was an earnout. And you said, all earnouts end in litigation. We were kind of tongue-in-cheek, but you said most earnouts. And it turned out that we were marching toward litigation when Genworth chose to sell my business. But it was because of the, the way our deal was structured. I remember calling you and saying, is there any way, I went to the ranch, I went on a mountaintop, I had, my beard was growing, my hair was out to here, my wife wouldn't talk to me, I was in this four-day cave of trying to close this deal, and they didn't want to give me 50% of my deal in the air now. And I remember calling you and saying, Jeremy, is there any way they can sign this deal without my signature? Can it make it go through? He goes, not really, John. And they had created so much momentum behind the deal that I knew I had them. So we ended up getting... Uh, 90% of our earnout accelerated long before the earnout was due. And then we were able to face off with a private equity firm. So, uh, you know, negotiate hard, negotiate well, uh, follow your gut. You know, my gut said we can get more, we can get more, and get really good counsel because there's going to come a day when the sales process is on the table, all you're thinking about is the money you're going to spend or the money that you're gonna save and how your life's gonna be different. And you don't think about the guy that's saying, hey, wait a second, you know, this is gonna end in litigation. Pay attention or watch the operating agreement post-close. Like, this is really important. So, you know, it's interesting. We, we could probably do an entire podcast yeah. on earnouts. Yeah. And, and your example, though, was such a great example that I actually really referred to a lot after this transaction because you, you really did a great job of, of taking very seriously that earnout and right. making sure that there were protections in place, that you had an involvement in the decision-making process around right. the building of the business, That's right. the sales team, the funding of the I business. I had a lot of leverage. And because of that leverage that we had built into the deal, they had to accelerate my earnout. I mean, it was really difficult for them not to. Right, right. But unfortunately, again, I think you pointed this out beautifully. A lot of people, when they sell their company, they're so focused on that cash mm. they're getting up front, 
and they don't want to rock the boat. Mm. They don't want to sort of hold fast. They don't mm. want to do that tough negotiation. That's right. And you're right. We had some very tough negotiations. And, and of course, just a quick aside, as, as one story, I'm sure you remember this, you also had a consultant um, who, who you had hired. Yes. Who I loved what you did. He was because, a pit bull. Because, right, you, you basically had that perfect bad cop, good cop scenario yeah. going. And you could be the good cop. That's right. And you could use the consultant to be the bad cop. That's right. And I, I still remember the meeting in New York. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he stood up and just railed on this guy, saying all the stuff that I couldn't say if I was going to preserve the relationship. And he was somewhat of a loose cannon, but he was my loose cannon. Correct. And, and later on, I could say, you know, I'm sorry about that. Rolled my eyes. I, he was a little bit overboard, but the core of what he was saying. So it was really a good strategy. I think it's a great one. And, yeah. it's, and it's a great lesson, I think, again, for people looking to sell their companies. I'm, I'm a big proponent of yeah. using agents, whether they're attorneys, Absolutely. whether it's investment bankers, whether it's using a consultant like you did. And I do think it gives you freedom to be able to, like you said, kind of, oh gee, I, I think that guy went too far, yeah, yeah. but still be able to get push things a little more than you might have otherwise been able to do. I think it's a great strategy. Yeah, and since then I've consulted with numerous businesses and you know, having the right A-banker and having the right attorney actually increases the value of your business. They look at you, if you don't bring the right team in place, they look at you like, this is a rookie move, we got this guy. Agreed. So. I want to go back a little bit and just, you know, this is a great story about the way you sold your company. Maybe just get a little more high level. So I'm an entrepreneur. I'm just starting a business. Maybe it's not even an investment management business because I know you've been involved and we'll talk now a little bit about other things you're doing now, but I'm just starting a business. What, what, what's your advice for me? I haven't run one before. I'm, you know, 25 years old, just graduated college. I want to be an entrepreneur. You, there is so much information available now on the internet, online, through uh, uh, places like Coursera, lynda.com, there's VC uh, courses, there's, there's entrepreneurial courses. So develop a voracious appetite for an acquisition of knowledge. Like I can't, like drive time, you know, put on the podcast. Uh, I mean, you know, when you're when you have downtime, be listening to to sales and marketing, be listening to internet lead acquisition, be li be listening to VC uh, negotiations in terms. It's all available now. I mean, 15 years ago, this was hard stuff to get, but you can get so up to speed on so much. There's a lot of books now that even talk about you know how many hours it takes to become an expert on a subject. Mm -hmm. You think about going to school, four years you take you know three or four cl classes on a certain subject, you become an expert over several years. You can accelerate that in the period of 30 days or 45 days. So I would, in the hedge fund world, there was multiple uh, ideas on how to make money. I would become an expert on a certain hedge fund strategy just by doing a deep dive on the literature out there. So I would say as an entre entrepreneur, um, you know, spend your time, your free time, build your business, follow your gut. Uh, you got to have a unique uh, value proposition, really focus on your unique value proposition and don't stop learning. Wonderful. So, you know, you sold the company once, then you talked about, you know, the private equity firm came in, you sold it a second time. Yeah. So now you're, you know, not involved, obviously, specifically in the investment management business, but what are you doing now? So I have a nonprofit called naturalhigh.org. Uh, I lost in my uh, youth, my two younger brothers, to drugs. So I started a drug prevention organization, uh, and we're in 20,000 schools. And it's just a real passion of mine. We're, we're, we're saving the lives of youth, literally, naturalhigh.org. I, uh, I run a small family office, you know, as, as, as all family offices go. Uh, but, you know, I got two employees there and do a lot of different active investing. I serve on several boards, 
for-profit and non-profit. Um, I'm very involved in my church. I have a faith background. Uh, and I'm spending more time with my family. I had, I had, Jeremy, the blessing of being able to punch out while my kids were still young. My daughter was 15, 14. My son was, you know, eight. That's, that's amazing to be able to have that time to turn back and focus on my, my marriage, turn back and focus on my kids. Uh, so I'm having the time of my life right now. I'm really, uh, you know, high-fiving life. <laughs> I love it. I love hearing great success stories for entrepreneurs. Um, well, you know, 20 minutes goes quickly. Yeah. Um, I want to thank you, John, for taking the time to do this. This was wonderful, and you shared some just incredible nuggets of information for our listeners. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you, Jeremy. A pleasure to be here. I am Jeremy Glazer of Mince Levin, and thank you for listening to this edition of From the Edge.